comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. Back from my one-month vacation from podcasting, and I feel good. Brother feels real good right now. And we got a lot lined up for y'all for the month of August. As a matter of fact, this is how this is how it's going to go down. Uh, this episode, you're going to hear interviews with Jamal Eigel and Alan White. They will be talking about their respective Kickstarter projects, one Jamal's being Molly Danger and Alan White's being the power principal. Two very, very well endearing and wonderful projects to get behind. We not only talk about those Kickstarter projects, but we also talk about, you know, other things because you know how we do on the PKD Black Box. We are tangents and topics aplenty. I hope you enjoy these conversations that you hear on this episode. Then the week after that, you will get a special Tales from the Attic where Donnie Salvo interviews some folks from Comic Con and that's uh, Comic-Con, C-O-N-N, a comics convention taking place in Connecticut uh, in the month of August. Then followed by that, you will get another episode of the PKD Black Box, where myself, along with Peter Rios of the Daily Rios podcast, talks about, we both talk about, uh, Justice League Detroit. This is something that has been in the works for a few years now. And, and I'm so stoked that it actually happened and you're going to be able to listen to it. So you're going to hear us conversate about one of my favorite runs, runs from the Justice League of America comic book series, as well as in that same episode, you'll get some conversation between myself and Donnie, just random talk. Then after that, you're going to get a Carol Chronicles episode. Carol Chronicles returns after a brief hiatus. Uh, John Carroll will come back and drop you an episode of that. Followed by at the end of August, we will have another Hip Hop Summit episode featuring Julian Lytle, Tribe One, a.k.a. Niles Gray, and the one and only Jason Wood of 11 O'Clock Comics and myself as we discuss more hip hop. We talk about hip hop groups. We talk about, you know, you know what? I'm not even going to spoil it for you. I'm just going to let y'all check that out at the end of the month because that episode is pure fire. Actually, the whole month of podcasts are pure fire. So I hope you enjoy them all. Also, special shout out to Donnie Salvo for holding it down last month with Tales from the Attic Summer Craptacular, where he talked about in his own special way, Archie meets Kiss, all four issues. If you haven't listened to those episodes and you want a good laugh, I strongly suggest going back and downloading those. You'll have a good time. Trust me, Donnie never disappoints. Never, ever. Hope you enjoy that. And like I said before, glad to be back podcasting. Brother just needed a little bit of time off to get some other things in order. So enjoy these episodes for the month of August. And like I said, we got more September, October, November, and December. So enjoy. But now let's get to our feature presentation.
I'm still salty that this man has a copy of the Mighty Orbots on DVD that I have yet to see. Um, you know, but this man is my brother. I love him to death. He is a talented artist. You could currently see his work on the IDW Kiss miniseries and other books across the nation. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only Jamal Igle. Jamal, how you doing, sir? I am good, man. I am good. And don't worry about the mighty Orbots. I am going to give you the, the DVDs and you can return them to me when I go to Lexington next year. Oh, okay. Well, guess what? In September, um, I have a surprise for you as well. I got a copy. Uh, okay. I, I got a copy of uh, Megaforce coming your way in September. Uh, <laughs> Ace Hunter on DVD in the United States for the first time ever. Oh, you just made my day, man! You just made my day. <laughs> Get ready for get ready for beige spandex, blue headbands, and bad blue uh, screen effects, baby. Uh, because the good guys still win, even in the eighties. I still don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> and you know Barry Boswick, when Barry Boswick got that role and he said that line in the camera, somewhere uh-huh. he was saying, "I'm set for the rest of my life." And somewhere. I don't know. Raymond Chow and 20th Century Fox were like, we are so fucked right now. <laughs> uh, I think I think like that movie was the reason my mother and father got divorced because <laughs> they took me to see that. And I swear a week later, they were arguing with each other nonstop. And before I know it, they got divorced. So I was like, I done broke up the family because they took me to see Megaforce. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> So for for people who don't understand Megaforce, the best way that I can describe Megaforce is if Denny Terrio were running Shield. <laughs> that's the best. <laughs> that's the best way that I can describe Megaforce. It's yeah. all, as Sean said, it's beige spandex outfits with guys riding around on motorcycles and dune buggies, firing lasers at tanks for no reason. For no reason at all. And it has. Um, <laughs> It has, uh, oh, I can never say her name correctly. Uh, it's like Paris Kambata. Yeah, don't even bother. <laughs> um, she, you might remember her as the bald-headed, the bald-headed chick on the first Star Trek, the motion picture. Or, yes. as, or as a lot of my friends say, Star Trek, the long TV episode. <laughs> but you know, I, oh, go ahead. I prefer Dramamine, the motion picture, personally. You know... <laughs> Um, for two dollars, I got a copy of that the two disc director's cut, where they went in and touched up some of the uh, special effects. Right, it helped it a little bit, but I finally realized what that movie is about. Finally, it's not about the fact that Google became a sentient being and like <laughs> captured a satellite and decided to just eat culture. It wasn't that. The story is about basically Captain Kirk is having a midlife midlife crisis. He needs something to do. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to punk this dude from Seventh Heaven, take the Enterprise (laughs) from him, and uh, we're going to go on adventures, y'all. And we're going to stop Google. That's what we're about to do. We're going to stop Google from taking over the universe. That's what that movie is about. (laughs) But the thing is, though, it took damn near 30 years 
for me to figure that out because technology had to come, it had to reach us in order for me to understand that. Well, was it that or was it just the fact that now that we're getting older, you can appreciate that aspect of it a little bit more? Um, a little bit. I mean, the movie is still boring as hell. Oh, yeah. It, it, I have never, there are very few things that I have fallen asleep in a screening in a theater through. And I stayed up through Batman and Robin. Mm. Yo, that is one of the few movies in the history of, of cinema I went to drunk and lost my buzz in 30 minutes. <laughs> it made me want to cry. I sat, I sat stone-faced in a theater. <laughs> there was like me and maybe like a bunch of 12-year-olds like in the afternoon, one, one afternoon. And I'm just wa- – and I didn't, I didn't emote. I didn't move. I wanted my money back. Mm-hmm. And I and I couldn't even be bothered. <laughs> to this day, to this day, I remember the movie theater I saw that in. Um, this movie theater no longer exists. It was at the Dayton Mall, and the Dayton Mall, like a lot of malls used to have, they used to have movie theaters inside the mall. So right. Cinema Number One would be on one end, Cinema Number Two would be on the other end, and, th- and those would be the big ones. And then like you would have three, four, five, and six, and those were all the smaller ones. Right. Well, they kept Cinema Number One. That was the only one they kept, and they closed all the other ones down, essentially. But cinema number one was huge. It had a huge screen, you know, and it was so big that it, like, it bent at the corners, and it could seat a lot of people, and it was a beautiful movie theater. Beautiful. Well, they had Batman and Robin. So me and my, me and my best friend Chris were like, yo, we got to go see this. And I was like, man, you know this is going to be bad, right? He was like, yeah, man. He was like, we got to go drinking before this movie start. You know, we go... And this is when I could actually drink. You know, if I tried to do this now, I would just have to go home and go to bed. And this is when movie theaters had midnight shows um, on Friday nights. Um, Because a lot of movie theaters don't even do that anymore. But um, I had like six shots of Jaeger and a beer. I'm good. I mean, good. <laughs> you know, 20-something-year-old Sean, I'm, I'm not advocating drinking, okay, ladies and gentlemen? Right. I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying I was, you know, it was my, you know it, I was young, and it was that time I could get away with that. Exactly. And we did have a designated driver. So, um, so we go to the movie. I'm buzzed. I'm feeling good. The movie starts, and... I just get partway through and I just look at I, I look at my friend Chris. Chris looks at me and we just start shaking our heads just like, man, we just should have stayed at the bar. <laughs> you know, we just should have stayed at the bar, man. I mean, I, uh, I, I was having more fun at the bar. And I was like, can we go back? He was like, man. And this was like in the movie tickets was like seven bucks. He was like, man, right. you want to wait and see back in like 90 something. You want to waste the seven dollars? No, man, I might as well just sit right here, man. I'm just going to sit right here and watch the rest of this movie. See, that's a, good, that's a good question in general. Has there ever been a movie that you just said, you know, screw it, I, I can't sit through this anymore? Wing Commander. And I really? Saw, and I saw that for free. Oh, I got one for you. Cutthroat Island. Ooh, ooh, see? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I walked out halfway through. <laughs> okay. It was, and, I, and again, same thing. Free ticket. There was me and two other people in the theater, and I walked out halfway through and said, "Fuck this." Mm. <laughs> See, the first time I saw that was on HBO, and I got through the first half of it, and I wasn't pleased with it. Then three years later, I watched it, and I liked it a lot. And I, and I was like, "Hey, this wasn't that bad." I don't know what happened the first time I tried to watch it. I don't know if I was in a bad mood. I don't know <laughs> what was going on. But like the second time, I was like, "Man, this wasn't as bad as people said it was." But 
only reason I went to see Wing Commander was for uh, the Star Wars Episode One trailer because that was, uh, that was Fox's ploy. There was like, look, man, this movie really blows, and it has no budget, and um, it really shows. So let's boost our box office numbers by telling the whole world, hey, the Episode One trailer is going to be attached to Wing Commander, and Universal's like, yo, can we borrow that for Meet Joe Black? Cool. <laughs> And um, so I was like, man, I go see Meet Joe Black, which is like five hours long, or I go see Wing Commander. And my boy was like, one of my friends was like, yo, we go see Wing Commander, it's on me. I'm like, all right, man, cool. And I should have known better because this was the same dude that took me to see the Street Fighter movie for free. Oh, We'll talk about that some other time. But, <laughs> but, um, so we get through the episode one, it's like, oh, all right, well, cool. You know, hopes are all high and everything. And then the Wing Commander movie starts and it just keeps going and going nothing's happening i'm literally seeing freddie prince's freddie prince jr's career die before my eyes and i'm just like (laughs) this is really really bad and then i was like man i gotta leave so he and like my friend was like all right so we leave and then like a few years later it was on hbo or something and i was like let me watch this whole thing maybe i gave it a bad rap no dude it was terrible. Like when the bad guys show up, like the the big lion creatures, they right. didn't have, they didn't have the money to make the, really make the lion creatures. So you didn't see them until like the last ten minutes of the movie. And like there are these dudes in these like really stiff suits that can't move. They're like trying to bust through this barge or whatever. And like one of them gets shot. And it's literally the dude just like fell over. It's like somebody just pushed a statue over. It oh, was so bad. bad. It made Battlefield Earth look like gold. That's how bad wing commander is as, as a movie and it has people in it it, it doesn't all- matter that that does not matter one single bit it doesn't it it, it 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 doesn't matter if it has good people in it there's a lot of movies with good people in it, in it that are garbage oh yeah like spear uh speed racer oh no see i like speed racer man I like it. I I I I I can't hang with you on that. One. No, that's cool. No, no, teach their own because I was <laughs> like you. I hated that movie before it even came out, and then like I felt bad. I was like, you know what? I need to watch this before I before I really diss it. I got it, and I, and like a friend of mine let me borrow it, and I'm like, man, this is actually better than watching one of the episodes at one of the cartoons. <laughs> And it ha- and it has a lot of anime like shit in it too, right? But I'm like, I could really do with a I could really do with a Racer X movie. I understand why people don't like it. I still say it was a movie that I think, and I don't like really using this term, but I think it was a movie that really nobody had asked for, and the fact that it had been in development hell, development hell for damn near 20 years didn't help. Right? Anymore. Come on, man. Johnny Depp was attached to play uh, Speed Racer back in the 80s. He, he what? Oh God! Yeah, dude. you know I would actually pay money to see that. Yeah, man. Serious. I'm, I'm I'm dead serious. I have I have still have a few issues of comic scene. You remember that magazine? Yeah, of course I remember that magazine. And in the back they had the Hollywood section, and they would tell. Oh you, yeah. Oh would, yeah. Back, back in the days when uh, when the, when they had everybody from uh, from uh, Tom Cruise mm-hmm. to uh, who who else was attached to play Spider Man at one point? Uh, I, I, oh. Shoot, there was a couple. John Cusack was attached to play Spider Man at one point. What wasn't River Phoenix attached once too? Yes, he was actually. And I see. I need to. I need when I see you at Baltimore. I need to bring you this uh, issue of a comic scene where they talk about the Spider Man movie. 
And right. um, in the Spider-Man movie, this director, this is before can you know the supposed Cameron Spider-Man movie is going to happen. That this director was going to do, he said Spider-Man wasn't going to show up until the last five minutes of the movie. <laughs> and he was like, and "You will pre- and you'll appreciate it." I'm like, "Nah, son, that's not a good look. That's not a good look. No, sir. No, sir." <laughs> But we're not here to talk about bad movies, even though we have for like the past few minutes. <laughs> we are here. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Just... No, no, no. Don't go ahead. Okay. We go are. Ahead. We are. At, we are actually here for another purpose. Uh, we are here because uh, Mr. Eigel, as of this recording, the day you hear it, Mr. Eigel will have a Kickstarter out for his own creator-owned project called Molly Danger. Molly Danger is going to be a series of a European style hardcovers featuring his original character named Molly Danger. And we're here to talk about this Kickstarter project, its origins, what it's all about, um, what he hopes to accomplish with this project, and much, much more. My first question to you, Jamal, is who is Molly Danger and why is she the hero we've all been waiting for? Okay, well, Molly as far as she knows, has always been Molly Danger. And Molly Danger is the strongest person on her planet, on our planet, as far as as anybody is concerned. She is the world's greatest superhero. She also happens to be 10 years old. But she's been 10 years old for the last 20 years. Okay. And for the last 20 years, she's been, she's protected... The city that she's adopted as her home is a city in upstate New York called Coopersville. And uh, for the last 20 years, she's been protecting Coopersville from a team of cyborg supervillains called Supermax. Now, all anybody really knows about Molly's origin is that she and her family crash-landed on Earth. They believe that she's an alien from another planet. She crash-landed on Earth about 20 years ago. Her parents and her brother passed away before their powers had a chance to kick in. And Molly is, as far as she knows, the last survivor from her planet. She's good. She's noble. She's smart. She's sweet. But she's also extremely lonely. There is an organization that has, over the last 20 years, sprouted up around her. The organization is called DART. They're Dangerous Action Response Team. And their charter basically is to assist her and monitor her activities. But the problem is, is they also keep her sequestered from the public. She doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have a lot of contact with DART members. And she's been told her, the, her entire life that the reason that this is is because she's so much stronger than everybody else. It could be a hazard. It could be dangerous for a normal person to be around her. So she, she's basically this princess in an ivory tower for the most part. But we introduce another character into the story, actually several characters into the story. One of those characters is a police helicopter pilot named Austin Briggs, who has been trying to join DART for the, for the last year. 
and he has his own uh, motivations for for joining Dart, but he's the one who sort of <laughs> breaks protocol and uh, brings Molly home for dinner. <laughs> and that's where the, the story sort of picks up. In doing this and creating this, um, you know, this is when we've talked about this like offline many a times, but the general right. public, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't know about all the behind the scenes stuff. But um, this has actually been something that's been in the works for a very long time. Right. I originally came up uh, with the idea for Molly. It was me and a friend of mine, Rich Marizio. And we were actually driving back from Pittsburgh Comic Con. This was 2001. And I had just moved back to New York from Los Angeles. I'd been working in animation and in comics, doing uh, stuff over at Marvel for about a year and a half. And Rich is was a small publisher. He had a company called Airwave Comics that he he did the I Dream a Genie comic book, and he used to publish Patrick the Wolf Boy um, by Alt Baltasar and uh, Franco, you know, of Tiny Titans fame. A bunch of other stuff, you know, Mr. Beat and a bunch, you know, a bunch of like, you know, good, good, like family friendly kids comics. And we were sort of, you know, we were driving back and we were probably around, we were driving through Jersey at this point. We we're heading up towards the George Washington Bridge. And we started talking about trying to pitch an animated show and what would we want to do. So the the initial idea and this was you know 2001 so you had like the life and times of Juniper Lee and you had Kim Possible and Atomic Betty running around and we were kind of going back and forth on whether or not we should should pitch her you know just formulating the idea whether she should be older where she younger and I basically said if we're going to do this it has to appeal to kids so she has to be a younger character we ultimately said after that that our our best way to go was to do molly as a comic book because you know we're comic book guys that's what we know so we started i started writing a script and we were initially going to do it as try to do it as a monthly series at first i started penciling and I had written a full script. I written a 22-page script. I started penciling the book, and then I started to get busy with paying work. And I got busier and busier and busier until finally it became impossible for me to write and draw the series myself. So then we hired another artist who happened to be also be named Jamal <laughs> uh, Jamal Peppers, who's one of the artists on Sonic the Hedgehog now. Archie and this was when he was just first getting into the business and I had actually met Jamal maybe like a year or two before and he's a good guy very, very very talented guy and he basically started working from the layouts that I had provided him and the script that I provided him and he got about six pages into it and then he couldn't do it anymore because you know you know how it is with small publishers you know that the financing's not there it's hard right. to to get things going so we put molly on the shelf for a while with every intention of getting back to it and then i started doing you know i 
was doing stuff for the mainstream companies. And then Jay Ferber and I pitched uh, Venture, another creator-owned series that I did, to Image Comics. We did Venture, and then I ended up doing the uh, the, the uh, Army of Angels series for uh, the Humanoids Associés in France. You know, and all this, all this time, I'm still doing sketches of Molly. You know, I actually used my mother, who was uh, was getting her degree at the time, asked me to ask me if she could use Molly as like the the character in one of her uh, her projects at school. <laughs> so I did a bunch. I did like a, a Molly children's book about you know cleanliness and hygiene. Just you know, really, 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 really quick stuff, Um, and you know, things were proceeding at pace. You know, I had finished the 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 stuff for Humanoids, was going to go back to do Molly again, and then DC called, and I ended up drawing Firestorm, Mm -hmm. and then I ended up signing a contract, and I ended up being at DC for six years, for seven years altogether, including year year that I was on Firestorm without a contract. So, that takes us to December, January, uh, December 2011, January 2012. And all this time, still doing little doodles in Molly, every so often upgrading the you know, concept designs, playing with the, the shape of the Molly mobile, you know, you know, writing notes. Yeah. Um, but also, I had written a a brand new pitch for Molly, and I originally had pitched it to uh, to Abrams Publishing, the the same people who do Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Mm-hmm. And the plan, had they accepted it, was that I was going to spend the last year of my contract with DC drawing, but writing all four books. I never heard back anything from Abrams hmm. except for occasionally seeing uh, Charlie Coachman <laughs> at, convention, at conventions. Uh, and I thought he had lost absolute interest in it. So then I took it to a, a literary agent who said to me, this is a wonderful story. This is a great comic book idea. I have absolutely no idea who I could take this to. So we get back to January, you know, December, January this year. My contract with DC is just about to run out. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, trying to think, okay, what is going to be the next thing? What was the next phase of Jamal as a creator, Jamal as an artist, Jamal as a burgeoning writer? Because, you know, one of the other things that got kind of pushed to the side was the fact that I do write and I have written quite a few things over the years that have been either published or you know bought or you know unproduced or you know or you know concept stuff or pitched in various forms and uh, I was getting contacted by people who wanted to pitch you know, who wanted to put together a project and wanted to pitch through this website called Kickstarter. I, up until that point, had never even heard of Kickstarter. So I started investigating it. And I have 
I mean, Molly is just one of several ideas that I have, but Molly really is the one that I felt was the strongest and the one that's the most personal to me. Mm-hmm. So I investigated Kickstarter. I looked at the website, and I just said to myself, you know what? If I'm going to expend the time and energy that it's going to take to run a Kickstarter campaign, it should be for something that I give a damn about and not just be another work for hire gig for another writer. You know, I, you know, I need to put myself out there. So I went and I looked at the, 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 the pitch that I put together for Molly and I said, you know what, this is, this is it. This is what I need to do. And this is, you know, because it, it, it hits all of the, the nerves in me, you know, the things that had been bothering me about the general direction of the business for a very long time. And it's exactly the type of story and the type of character that I think needs to exist more in American comics. You can, you, you'll see, you see characters similar in tone to Molly in Europe or in Asia. And there's like a few characters here in the States, but none that have really had a, a really big reach. And one of my inspirations really for dusting off Molly and really just you know, making this push for her was the fact that, you know, I have a daughter now. She's, she just turned four. She's getting ready to go to school in September, which, you know, scares me a little bit, but, you know, the fact that I have a school-aged child now. (laughs) Katie, my daughter, loves superheroes. And she loves Ben 10. And she loves Pokemon. She was, she's got a Supergirl costume that we bought her for Halloween that she put on today. And my wife and I were in the bedroom, and Katie walked, walked into the living room going, da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> you know, daddy's influence notwithstanding. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know. Every, you know, I buy her the, the, the DC, the, the, the Superman family comic. She loves that. She loves, you know, she loves superheroes. But one of the things that I've noticed is there isn't like, the, 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 the mainline DC and Marvel books. I can't give those to her. Right. Because they're too violent for younger kids. They're too, you know, DC, God love them. DC has abandoned, you know, the twelve to eighteen market, or even the, in my case, the four to eighteen market to cater to adults, to cater to an adult mentality, yeah. which is well within their right. But I remember when I was a kid, and I know you remember this too. We had those gateway comics. Oh yeah, dude! Like yeah. you went from what was crazy, like especially like Marvel and DC. Like on DC, kids had Captain Carrot, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you and you had even like the all the all the different Superman books. You know, like when I really hopped toward DC, it was during like the you know Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? You know, which was a very you know it was a mature story, but kids could read it too. You know what I mean? Exactly. But there's a way there's a way that those books were handled. Right, right, right. And and that's not to say that like and with Marvel is the same thing. Marvel had they're like okay. Like, you know, some of our, you know, if we feel that some of our Spidey stories like Craven's Last Hunt are too, are too little, too extreme for kids, that's okay because we got Marvel Tales where right. we will talk about old Spider-Man stories that kids haven't seen yet or right. Marvel Team-Up or, you know, and they always found a way if they had a story that was for the teen set and above, they had something to counter that on the other side. Even, right. even stuff like Star Comics. There we go. Star Comics. Well, not even you don't even have to look at Star Comics. They had Power Pack. Yeah, Power Pack. Yes. Power, Power Pack was I loved Power Pack. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Power Pack was the per, was one of those books that was per, was a perfect gateway comic. If you wanted to get a younger reader into into comics, you gave them one of those books. Oh yeah, or you gave them a licensed property book. Right, like Star Wars. I mean, that exactly. was that was honestly and I tell people all the time, that was one of the early like Marvel books I ever read before that, I got Harvey books like Richie Rich and and Casper because I knew of them from watching television. And exactly. So you know, my mom noticed that she's like, "Well, he likes Richie Rich. Here's a Richie Rich book for him," and right. and so forth and so forth. And then it grew, but there was always there was always something to counter something else, and that's not really like that now over at DC and you're right like the the four the ages 4 to 18 brackets kind of just push to the side yeah there are a couple of DC books for kids like they'll do their like cartoon network pack type book where they'll take some of their characters some of the cartoon network characters and like give them like one and done stories within a book like an anthology and there's you know the Franco and um Franco and I never say uh, is it Balthazar. I always say yeah, our, our our Balthazar. Okay, and you know the Franco and Balthazar book, the, the, you know, and for, from whether it be Tiny Titans or Superman Family, right. and that's really about it because they don't venture those books outside of comic book shops. I mean, unless it's a trade paperback, they don't they don't venture those books outside of comic book shops, which I think is silly. Those books need to be everywhere, but that's just it's my personal opinion. But you're right. There is this gap with the bigger publishers of not pushing books towards children. And their excuse will say, well, the numbers aren't there. But if you don't make the attempt to cultivate and grow an audience, what's the point? Exactly. And, and it's not just the gap with the publishers. There's a gap in terms of you know, popular characters also, mm-hmm. because there is no female equivalent to Ben 10. No, 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 no. And, and that, is, that, that is one of the things that is desperately needed in entertainment right now. Because having a girl and being around other girls, girls like superheroes. Yep. Oh, yeah. But they want superheroes that they can relate to, you know, which is why something like Cardcaptor Sakura worked when it was here. And the same thing with Sailor Moon. Oh, yeah. And, and that's why, like, you know, I know people like always joke with me because I love them so much. But that's why girls love Power Rangers, because there's always at oh, yeah. least at least two, two female Power Rangers in every single team. 
That's right. Every that's single right. time. It's like that's like the United Nations of <laughs> of like superhero teams because it's like you're gonna have one white dude, one black dude, um, and then like it's just and then it's just it's like multicultural city on right. on, on one team. But you're <laughs> right. It's it's a you know a very it's a it's a very difficult find right now. It's an extremely difficult find, and I'm really trying to think right now off the top of my head, like as far as cartoons go, a cartoon with a female a female lead that is a massive hit right now. There like, isn't one, right? There, not currently, right? I mean, I the last the last one was Kim Possible, right? And 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 I think about it like there are a lot of hit cartoons that have great female characters or fun female characters in them but they're not the main characters right you know whether you look at a series like adventure time which is which is utterly insane and every time i see it i'm like i shouldn't be watching this but i can't not watch it you know what i mean i have to watch it is right but but even those shows like adventure time or amazing world of gumball or or regular show, they all have male leads. They don't. Correct. There isn't a single female lead in any of those shows. Yeah, absolutely correct. Yes, very, very true. Very, very true. And that's so. That's something that definitely needs to be fixed. Like whether it be in comics or for cartoons. And right with like Action Lab. I mean, you know, we saw that with, with Princeless. With Princeless, like we've had so many people say, "How come there aren't more books like this?" Right. You, you know what I mean, and not just oh, it's a book with a with a young black female lead. It's not just that, but it's like how come there aren't more stories for girls, or you know, it's not just girls that are reading the book. I mean, we have grown ass men reading the book. We have you know you know boys reading the book. We have grown women reading the book. I mean, all ages. See, right, and that's something else that that really the stigma of the term all ages. If something is all ages, it doesn't mean that it's dumbed down. It no. doesn't mean that it's just for kids. It means anybody can read it. And exactly. I and I don't exactly. and I don't know where the stigma came came from where people just assume that now all ages means oh it's just for kids, so it has to be awful. Well, because there's such a big disparity between the stuff that used to be all ages that has become more adult and what they consider to be kiddie material. When I think of all ages, I think of, you know, old Warner Brothers cartoons where there were jokes on every single level. You had jokes that uh, that that you I there were jokes in in Bugs Bunny cartoons that I didn't get until I was like 14 or 15 years old and I started watching those things when I was 4 and as your knowledge increases then you start to appreciate it on different levels so when I think when I think of an all ages action adventure series like what I'm attempting to do with Molly Danger, I think on the level of The Incredibles. You know, that level, because it was, when you think about it, it was a very mature story, but it was told and shown in such a way that it made it, it, it while the, there were scenes that were disturbing mm-hmm. for younger kids and maybe a little bit scary, they weren't gruesome or bloody or over the top pixar made the ultimate fantastic four family film yes they did right right there right i mean i mean to me that's what that's what it was and like and i just i didn't i didn't think about that until it's probably the third time i saw it i was like and it just hit me in the middle of watching it i'm like oh 
Oh, okay. And but I mean, <laughs> and, I, and I just I, I love that movie. I mean, right. You 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 can't go wrong with The Incredibles. You can't, which makes me shake my head as to because I know like a lot of people are bashing, not bashing. They're criticizing Pixar for making sequels to things like Cars and a sequel to Finding Nemo is in the works. Right. But like to me, like the first thing that pops in my head outside of the Toy Story sequels, which, you know, you can't say anything bad about Toy Story films. People will cut you. Um, oh, yeah. If you talk bad about Toy Story films, those are great. <laughs> those are great movies. But um, instead of doing a sequel to Cars or doing a sequel to Finding Nemo, Finding Nemo, why not The Incredibles? I don't think The Incredibles probably did not. It did well, but I don't think it did as well as the Toy Story movies or Finding Nemo or anything else they're doing because The Incredibles unfortunately falls into that that niche of being superheroes. And there's still a lot of people who have a a bias against superhero properties. Even though they do. But see, that's the the funny thing. Every time, well, critics or the general public have this aversion to it, Mm -hmm. it still makes money. Even this is true. It, it still make, it still it still makes me see. I think the difference is now is that the general public can now smell the bullshit from a mile away, right? As opposed to the stuff that's either going to be just fun for everyone or or like a critical slash box office success. It's like people knew that Ghost that, that Ghost Rider sequel was going to be bullshit, and right. and they just said, you know what. I'm just going to wait till that comes out on video. Um, I'm not going to watch that. And But they went to go see The Dark Knight Rises, and they went to go see The Avengers. And and, 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 other, and other films that are based off of comic books, they went to go see those. But right. they left Ghost Rider alone because they knew that movie's going to be bullshit. And, um, <laughs> you know, because, like, I heard it, you know, Idris Elba was in it, and I was like, oh, I got to go see it because Idris Elba's in it. And then I thought for a second, I was like, don't do it. You remember, you saw the first one in the movie theater and you got mad. And don't do it to yourself. Don't suck at yourself twice. And I was like, okay, I won't go. And I was better off for not going. You're right. It's it's just it's but it's one of those things where I think the general public now has I don't want to say an acquired taste for, you know, comic book films that are based off of superhero properties or whatever, or superhero right. type films. I think they have acquired a taste, but they also, one, they know when the influx comes, and when the influx comes, they do have a tendency to stand off on even on good stuff like The Losers. Right. But, you know, but then again, that got hit because if you're going to put the losers, the expendables, and the A team out in the same year around the same month, span of two right. months, somebody's going to get their ass kicked. Right, there's there's going to be oversaturation of of the product. I think didn't the losers and the A team come out within like two weeks of each other? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like, and we, we, I remember us talking. We like we we had to talk about this like oh like last year, and like what happened was. 20th Century Fox was just putting out like a new movie every single week for like six straight weeks during the summer. Like, oh hey, our movies don't need to make money. We can we can just compete with ourselves. So yeah, go ahead and put Predators and A Team and uh, Date Night and all this stuff back to back to back to back, and then the Losers, <clears throat> which had got pushed to a later date. It was supposed to come out earlier. They pushed it to a later date because like yeah, it's done great on screeners. It's gonna be a summer smash. I'll put it out a couple. Right. Put it out a couple weeks before Expendables, and a little, and a little bit in between eighteen. Really, I, I didn't understand that. Plus, you also had Red that year too. Now, granted, that was later in the year. Red was successful. 
Yeah, but you're right. It's just it's oversaturation. You know, over, oversaturation can definitely kill any genre. And right. I'm, you know, I'm waiting for the vampires to die. I, I really am. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for. I, it. I'm waiting for the zombies to die personally. Um, I'm, that's, I'm tired as. <laughs> that's coming, but I don't think it's for another two years. Probably not. Here's the other thing that I was going to say is that with, with superheroes particularly, we have spent the last 75 to 80 years being told superheroes equals kids. Right. You know, and no matter how much mature content is attached to it, it's for a, a good portion of the population. Because when you think about it, there's what, 300,000, you know, people who read comic books on a monthly basis in the United States somewhere somewhere along that that line that's what one percent of the population and, the country yeah and then that's and that's not even and that's not even getting into the newfound digital perspective of things especially right. after hearing the reports that uh, comicsology has made millions upon millions of dollars um, then the question is out of those readers how many of those are new you know what I mean? So, I mean, you're right. 300,000 is a very small number. Right. I think the other strange thing is, is that it's also a market that we can't, we can't really calculate a true number because not everybody. The thing is, is that the way the market is, it's such a market that you can't calculate how people read things and how people buy them because we, we live in a society where, especially nowadays, it should just be there. You know, I mean, people have just been accustomed to things just being there. And I think, like, we actually have more readers than 300,000. But right. the thing is, a lot of people, they, they may not have a comic book store in their neighborhood or they, you know, may not like their comic book store in their neighborhood, but they know if a show's coming up, hey, there's a lot of dollar bins. I'm going to go get all the books I've missed out on for the last two years at this show. And that's a different form of reader. So, like, that adds on to the number. But... That reader might not ha- might not get that access to all those other books, though. But they can right. still get that access to the mainstream titles. So it's it's such a jagged it's such a jagged market. And I want to I want to use a better term, but jagged is probably is probably the best term I can find for it. You mm. know, and it's something that I really think people want to fix, but they don't know how to fix. Right. And we're going to get back to, to Molly Danger. Before we get to the actual Kickstarter, the term creator-owned comics has been a trending thing for a while now. Uh, right. You know, you'll, you know, you'll hear almost everybody and their mama use it. I'm pretty sure rappers are going to start using it eventually because, right. because the term gets used so much. But, but there is a big influx of creator-owned comics comics now we have like a lot of creators that work for the bigger companies that when their contracts are up they might work on a book here or a book there for a big company but they're going to focus more on creator own work like uh, a brew like uh, ed brubaker um you know y- yourself right grant morrison when his con- when his uh batman inc uh and uh, action comics run ends he's going to work on more creator own stuff right um do you see that do you see the influx of creator-owned content getting back to the state 
that we once had in the like mid '80s to early '90s? I would like to think so. I I'm hoping that with you know what we're doing with Molly, that it, it won't just be about doing creator own within the comic book industry, but getting Molly and other uh, comic based material into what you know we consider to be non traditional arenas for comics. You know, getting it into bookstores, getting into you know, getting it into libraries, getting it onto the you know university reading lists, you know, uh, getting it into toy stores, you know, doing cross promotion, that sort of thing. I don't know if it's going to get back to the point it was in the eighties because I think um, things were less expensive. <laughs> yeah. In the 80s. Oh yeah. Boy, but yeah. but as you were as you started to say uh, a few minutes ago, we also have something now that we we don't ha- we didn't have any eighty is the available the digital platform. Yes, and I think that will get us. I I know from uh, my my travels over the last year or so to uh, to other countries, there are a lot of parts of the world where they they have internet access, but they don't. They they are unable to get you know the monthly DC or Marvel or any you know any monthly comics um, at all other than you know trade collections from Amazon from you know Amazon UK and even then it's you know incredibly expensive for them to do mm-hmm. so I think that, I think that the 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 digital platform is going to create a a new paradigm in terms of publishing overall. Yes. It still has its issues and it still has its hiccups, but it is something that I think, you know, it will, it's going to continue to grow. Um, oh, yeah. No, it's it's still very, very, very new. I mean, we're, we're talking, this is, you know, digital comics and digital, you know, even in terms of the, the potential of the, the Internet and the online community, we're still baby stepping. Not only is it baby steps, but the thing is, they're big steps, to be honest with you, Um, especially over the last like five years. I think people fail to realize how far technology has come in the last five to seven years. I mean, we went from like this gap between the 1980 to 1990, and then the 90s came through, and and we had advancements, and then, two, then 2000 hit. We had a few more advancements. But since, I'll say since 2005, shit has really taken off. I right. mean, quickly. I, I'm, I mean, exponentially, technology has changed. And it's literally to the point now, we have advancements that decades ago would have taken 10 years to get to, done in three months now. Right. And so we are, like, like the digital market is growing, but also at the same time, technology keeps growing over top of it. So digital comics has to catch up with technology. You know, it, <laughs> it's this constant game of catch up. It's this constant game of catch up. Right. Plus, you also have to decide, you know, what form those digital comics are going to take. Mm-hmm. Yes. As well, because you have so many different variations. You have the full on motion comic. You know, which is, you know, you might, to me, you might as well be just, you know, putting in the extra million dollars and doing animation. Right. <laughs> if that's the case, if that's going to be the case. And then you have, you know, the, the Marvel Next version, you know, and then you just have, you know, just the, the regular, just, you know, take those pages, 
you know, reformat them for the iPad and just, you know, scroll through them nor- as you would normally read a comic book. I, I think with all the different variations of digital comics that are out there right now, there, there's still a little bit of confusion about what works and what doesn't work. I think that the key to digital comics is going to be the, the, the accessibility and the price point of the device that you read it on rather than the material itself. Because once you come out with a $200 iPad, the whole script is going to get flipped. It's back to Molly Danger. It's okay. not just it's not just you putting this putting this book together. You actually have a team. You, yes, I do. You have your own you have your own danger action response team. <laughs> to put this book together and can yes. you can you tell me about some of the talented people that you will be collaborating with to make this book happen right so because we are trying to keep the book on schedule <laughs> i had i had gone out and i have secured the talents of a, a friend of the show juan castro who is also an incredibly talented inker. He inks Robert Atkins on Snake Eyes and G.I. Joe and a bunch of other stuff. He's absolutely brilliant. I've been wanting to work with Juan for a long time, and this just seemed like the perfect opportunity to do it. And we, as far as our coloring goes, we have a very tall but very lovely gentleman by the name of Michael Watkins who has done a lot of work on Transformers and Sound of the Hedgehog and a bunch of other stuff. So, you know, and that was one of the things that I secured very early on in the process. These are guys that I know. These are guys that I trust. Um, and they're going to help me put together the best possible package that I can put together. Uh, we're, we're still trying to figure out the, the lettering and production uh, production end, so you know there there'll be news as that's going forward. Yes. But um, this is the first the first project that I'm going to be writing and drawing solo. It, it helps to have good talented people behind me, so that I can uh, concentrate on those two aspects and not have to worry about anything else. <laughs> Hopefully, other than you know, trying you know, getting the book to the printers and getting it published and fulfilling all the rewards and, and everything else. Yeah, that can be uh, quite the challenge. Uh, yes, you know, from, yes, it can. From from personal experience and from from running a Kickstarter, believe you me, that could be quite the challenge. There there were some days where I would be at work. Um, checking the Kickstarter project to make sure I'm like, okay, have we hit our goal yet? How close are we? Okay, do I need to make another tweet? Do I need to make another Facebook post? Right, uh, you know, right, right. do you know? Do I do I need to nudge somebody to give me a helping hand? Uh, maybe I should just hide under my desk and cry for a while. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you know, you like you will go through like this like gauge of emotions um, within your time frame for your Kickstarter, and it's normal. It's right. absolutely normal. So, you know, don't don't trust me. Don't feel bad. Like when you just get to that point where like you just want to start flipping tables, <laughs> you know, tr- it's going to happen. Just breathe. 
it's going to okay. be okay. Trust me, brother. Okay. Just, you know, I had some Lou Ferrigno moments for a while because I thought we weren't going to make it. And, like, my, and my wife came in. I was just like, I was, like, at my desk. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, okay, what am I doing wrong? Am I not spreading out the word? What am I, you know, am I doing this? Have I been on enough podcasts about it? Have I done enough tweets? Have I done enough Facebook posts? Have I sent out enough emails? Maybe I've bothered everybody too much. And my wife just looked at me, and she said it in such a calm way. She said, honey please calm the fuck down. Right. And it's going to be okay. If it's, if it's, you know, if it's meant to be, it will be in regardless of whether this, the, the, the Kickstarter is successful or not, everything is going to work out. And right. the moment she said that, then she gave me a, a nice big glass of Kool-Aid and I was felt so much better. Um, <laughs> after that happened, I quit worrying and I just did the things that I had to do and everything fell into place, and then and the same thing, and the same thing is going to happen to you as well. I mean, you have a, a, a massive fan base. You have people that support you and love the work and art that you craft and do, and that's going to be a, a big benefit for you, um, honestly. And like, and that's the thing. Like, there are a lot of a lot of you know well known creators now doing Kickstarter projects, right. Um, you know, it's a big thing when when Action Lab got into Kickstarter. Kickstarter was still a wee puppy, mm-hmm. and it it was new, and you know it had been around for a few months, but it was still new to a lot of people. Right. And now crowdfunding is like the third biggest publisher, you know, in in the comics <laughs> game. And I think the other thing that people have to realize is that when you you know when you donate when you donate money. Um, for these Kickstarter projects, especially for comics, there has to be a line of patience. Right. And if that is specified within the Kickstarter project, then everybody should be cool and be on the same page. This is I, this is true. Um, this is true. Some people don't understand that. Some people don't understand that. But if it's specified within the timelines of the pro- of, of the Kickstarter project, then there really should be no worries as long as there's constant contact. And, right. your, and, well, your, and your Kickstarter has that. Yes, exactly. And... and- the, the thing about it is there are a lot of varying opinions about how how much should be done in terms of comic book Kickstarters as opposed to any other Kickstarter that I've seen. And I've been studying Kickstarter for like the last seven months like it's the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I, I, I'm on the site either every day or every other day i've actually like backed like 18 different kickstarter campaigns um over the last seven months or so just stuff that i don't necessarily have to get a reward from but i want to see happen because they sound like really good ideas and it's either by people that i know or people whose work that i know or you know in the case of like uh phil tippett's mad god film Where I was just like, oh my god, Phil Tippett is awesome. He's done everything that he's done stuff for every movie that I've ever loved my entire (laughs) life. I have to donate to this. So, and and that really is should be the point of Kickstarter. Kickstarter, when you when you think about Kickstarter, you should think about Kickstarter as angel investment. The, The the idea behind angel investment is that you're not necessarily going to see a return. 
a monetary return for your your investment. In the case of Kickstarter, the return comes in with the rewards that each campaign is going going to offer. Now, and I make it very clear in the Kickstarter campaign that what we are doing is we are raising the funds to produce, print, and distribute a 2,000 copy hardcover limited edition of Molly Danger Book One for Kickstarter backers. Mm-hmm. That that is there will be a direct market edition that will come out in October of of 2013. But this version will come out probably around this, either September. I'm hoping September, possibly October. It'll it'll ship around the same time. But this will be a limited edition version of the book so it won't be available to anybody else other than Kickstarter. it will have a separate cover mm-hmm. it will have a a separate thank you section in the back of the book um and you know you should be aware that if if you are kind enough to join us on this adventure that it's going to you you will see material one of the things that i'm doing is i'm not only going to be doing a production blog but you will be able to there will be material we're we're planning things for free comic book day we're planning things for san diego there you you will see where your investment is going all along i will be posting pages i will be posting sketches i will be you know talking i will have open communication with everybody who donates to the campaign any questions you have about the story you know or where this where you think the story might be going or <laughs> where you guess the story might be going you know i i will answer to the best of my abilities and a lot of it really is making myself more accessible to the the backers then I probably, I mean, and I'm pretty accessible as it is, right. but even more so once things get rolling, you know, it, it is, it, it is, I'm doing things in a very specific way only because I, you know, before I'm going to be able to do the artwork, I have another project that will probably be announced very, very soon. That will will have to happen before I get started on the artwork for Molly, but I'm already rewriting the script for Molly Book One. Now, when you talk about European style hardcovers, a lot of, a lot of our listeners may not be aware of what a European style hardcover actually is or looks like can you elaborate on that a little bit okay a european style hardcover is in in french is referred to as bande dessinée. basically what it is it is a 48 to 56 page single volume of a book it's hardcover the hard hardcover book it's nine it's usually between 8.5 and 9 by 12 inches so it is twice the size almost twice the size of the, an average comic book. So what? not only are you getting a much bigger scale with the artwork itself, um, the, the way that the story, each story will be written, even though it is part of a larger 
uh, tapestry that I'm building with with all four books. They are connected, but each story should have a a satisfying beginning, middle, and end. So that's what I mean by a European style hardcover. So this isn't, you know, your average floppy comic book. This is something that you're going to be able to stack on your bookshelf mm-hmm. and sh- and sit your coffee, your your cup of coffee on. <laughs> it will be the, the the ultimate coffee table book. Ex- exactly, exactly. Basically, in in terms of scale, it will probably it'll be a similar scale to an absolute edition, like one of DC's absolutes. Ooh, nice. It's about it's about the same scale, if not the same thickness. I mean, once we collect the whole thing, it'll probably be the same thing, about the same thickness. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Number one, number two, number three, number four. You put them all together, give somebody a concussion. Um, yeah, exactly. You're talking about you know 200 pages of material. Oh yeah. So yeah, but right now we're just talking about volume one in right. in general for, uh, for this for this Kickstarter, so people don't get it twisted. Um, exactly. You know, don't you know? Definitely don't want to get it twisted for sure. Um, yes. Yeah, I think that. But I think that's great though. I think that's something that comics miss out on from time to time is the versatility in size and you're starting you're, but you're starting to see a lot more of it from publishers outside of the big two um experimenting with formats right and, right, right. and i think it's necessary actually I, I think that in order for uh, for us to get into those non-traditional venues that i was talking about before we have to get beyond just doing you know the, the monthly floppy comic book or even you know the trade paperback mm-hmm. you, you need to give people a package an attractive package that they feel proud of owning that's why people buy hardcover novels as as opposed to paperbacks paperbacks you can buy cheaper and you know when you're done you just toss it in the garbage but you know a, you know a hardcover novel is something that people hold on to for decades yes yes my i'm i'm looking at my wife's bookshelf and the Sue Grafton series all the letters are looking at me <laughs> I'm like, is she going to be able to finish this whole set? Is she going to get to Z eventually? Because uh, she needs to hurry up. It's a lot of damn right. books over here. But no, you're right. The hard hardcovers are very endearing to people. Um, you know, they just have that long lasting quality to them. Right. It's also, it's also a, a format that you know translates over to the European market instantly. That is the bulk of their publishing is hardcover albums. Right. So, you know, when I was when I was planning you know how I was going to do this, it a, it's a format that I've worked in before. It's a format that I love because you have so much bigger a canvas to work with mm. than you would with your average, you know, 6 by 9 comic book. It makes me wonder how some of my favorite comic books during childhood and even now would look in that format. Um, it, they would be huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I could, you know, I could go back and like look at uh, oh, what was one of my favorite books like? Uh, say, for instance, well, like even right now with like the Archie stuff, like Mega Man. Seeing right. you know Mega Man in a European European format would be utter, just be incredible. Um, right. Or like that upcoming Sonic and Mega Man team up. Uh, mm-hmm. crossover that's about to happen 
God, I've been waiting for that my entire damn life. I'm like 40-something <laughs> years old. I've been saying since I was a child, somebody put these two people in a book together, and finally somebody snatched that idea from my brain 20 years <laughs> later and said, you know what? That brother was right. We need to do that shit. And who's doing it? Fucking Archie Comics. I know. I know. Oh, I, know. I mean, I'm not mad at them either. I'm not mad at them at all. I've said this on the show a number of times. I have thoroughly enjoyed what they've been doing the last three years. They, oh, yeah. They've become one of the more, more progressive companies in the industry. And and this is coming from someone who, like, 10 years ago, if you had said, yo, what you feel about Archie's, I, for Archie Comics, I said, no, I'm not fooling with them. I'm not fooling with them. <laughs> they got problems. They got mad problems. And they went from being a company with problems as far as putting out, not putting out books, but just the whole content and, right. lack, and lack of progression to mm-hmm. becoming a publisher that actually doesn't candy coat issues anymore. They they deal with issues and they have shown progression, not only in the Archie books, you know, with characters like Kevin Keller and stuff like that, but right. with going to licensed properties like Sonic, which people need to people need to wake the hell up and realize that Sonic book has been out forever. Yeah. And they have pros on that book that the rest of the industry just said oh we don't want to have anything to do with you We don't even think about them anymore dude i was opening up a sonic book terry austin is inking was was inking yeah. a sonic book terry I know. austin i know dude that dude used to ink those action comic john byrne team-up books <laughs> you know it's like either him or carl carl kiesel no terry right. no terry austin used to do the superman book and Kiesel yeah. used to do action. One, one of the two. They used to flip flop, but still, I knew that dude. You know what I mean? It's right. like you couldn't say John Byrne without Carl, Ke- Carl Kiesel and Terry Austin. You just couldn't. Exactly. And exactly. I'm, and I'm like, wait a minute. Was he? What's this dude doing on Sonic? You, you know what I mean? Or um, got to eat, man. Yeah, you got to eat. You know, yeah, you, you got to make that paycheck. It's like Al Milgram. Exactly. People know I give Al Milgram shit every single day, but he was like the ultimate, you know, uh, switch hitter. You know, right. you know, from from Marvel, I may not have liked all of his work, but I always respected his his hustle. Always did, always respected his hustle. That dude is making a living. You know, was making a living for a while doing Archie books. You know, after Marvel and him you know, split ways, I'll leave it at that. He made a living doing Archie books, and there are a lot of pros that the industry just just said, eh, we'll just pass you by. They're there now, and they're helping to make great comics. And I just, I got to give them props for that. I, I really do. I, they've got it together. And it's and with them, it's not always a game about numbers either. Because right. their numbers really have nothing to do with the, with the direct market. It's everywhere else. Everywhere else, they've got it on lockdown. The direct market's a piece of that, but it's not the whole pie. They make their money everywhere else because they're smart. They stayed in places where other people gave up. Very true. And I, I got to give him props for that. Just don't stop making Mega Man comics, please. <laughs> don't stop making Mega Man comics because that is like some of the trillest stuff I've ever read in a very long time. Your Kickstarter project for Molly Danger, you are running this for approximately 30 days. Yes. Yes. It's going to be a 30 day campaign. And again, like I said, you know, doing all the the research that I've been doing over the last you know seven months about Kickstarter, I felt that a thirty day campaign, you know, get in, get out, 
you know, push, 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 push for those 30 days and, you know, and basically make it happen was the best way to go about it. A lot of the well, more well-known names have shorter Kickstarter projects. Right. So, and so they, they, you know, and they, you know, and then the goal is you want your fan base to support you right away and have them tell a friend and another friend and so on and so on and so on. So it's it's not, it's not just that it is. There's a, a, there's, you know, based on their own their their own experience with you know the more successful campaigns they found that shorter campaigns have a higher uh, rate of success okay that there's a, there's a sense of immediacy and there is a sense there is an immediacy to getting this done but there's a greater sense of immediacy to doing a shorter campaign through Kickstarter yes you've been stu- like so you've been studying this for a while you've been getting this in people's ears for a while. Right, um, it's been talked about on the Action Lab website. It's been talked about on like a uh, websites like uh, was it Wired? Um, We're yeah, Wired magazine, yeah. Uh, Bleeding Cool. Yep. Uh, I think it got did it get mentioned? I know it got mentioned on Comic Book Resources on Robot yes, Six. It is. I, I don't know if it got mentioned on Newsarama yet, but it's it's been making you know it's been making its way around. You know, I got the name Molly Danger into the Associated Press this past weekend when I was in a. Uh, in Mexico City, yes, uh, do, doing a press conference for a convention that I was at. So you know, we were we were all over a bunch of uh, of uh, Latin American news sites talking about Molly Danger. So, <laughs> and you also had San Diego Comic Con to spread. The, yes, spread I was also at San. Exactly, and that was like the really surprising thing because you you know that you have a reach. For something when other professionals are coming up and asking you about your your Kickstarter, that's pretty big because like that even caught you off guard, right? Um, <laughs> you know, like when I remember you told me that when we was talking on on the phone about it, and I was just like, if like for me, I'm like, well, they should be talking to you about it. Like that's that's like that's like my attitude about it. But I, but then again, also at the same time, I get it. You know what I mean? It's it's like it's the last thing you expect because you're you're always in your work. You, you, right. You're in the work and you're just doing your thing. You're making sure that like one, you know, you hit your deadlines, that you put out the most beautiful art possible and that the sequentials are just, you know, just the ultimate. And you get so entrenched in that, like sometimes like the outside world and the people that you work with, you think that they don't notice what you do. But true. but the thing is, is that people notice and for the ones that don't or sleep on you they just need to be slapped but um <laughs> you know and like I, I talked about this before you know and it's just because it's the ultimate truth because like you, you know and we've had this talk and you've talked about on other podcasts like i always like when people say things like you know well he's a hard you know he's a hard worker or he's you know durable or reliable and like i know some people see those as like bad words i don't right. see it as i don't see it as bad words because to me being a hard worker being durable being able to always just go in and no matter what go all in on a project and give it your all that to me shows your talent more than anything else and because with all that stuff, you can't be durable, reliable, hardworking and all this stuff without some talent. You can't. You, you know, talent is in all those things. People say, oh, you know, that dude is just like one of the hardest working artists out there. He does great work. Or if they say a word that's, you know, that is other than outstanding and it may not sound like the strongest thing in the world. Like to me, don't take that personal. I wouldn't because you still, like I said, the talent you have to have talent in order to have any of these things 
that people mention, any of those qualities that people mention, you have to have talent in order to do that. And you've got that. Because I think that sometimes we get caught up in these words, man. We really right. do. We get caught up in these words and what they, you know, and what they're supposed to mean. And yeah, sometimes words can hurt. I know. Trust me. Um, <laughs> but uh, but sometimes we can't let words define who we are. Right. Let the art speak for itself. this kickstarter is real important and then you know i don't want to make sure that like i can have you on the show not only to talk about it but you know but also to re you know to emphasize the point that the need for more female characters to have their own titles and for all ages type stuff there's need there's a need for that for that type of material there's a need there's a want you know there's this i you know, I do a lot of conventions. I do a lot of in-store signings. I I talk at schools all the time, and you know, because I used to teach and I do and I lecture occasionally, and you know, I, I visit visit you know kids classes, and you know, I did uh, one of the things that I did uh, earlier this year was um, what's going to be my daughter's school up the up the street from me. Um, the one of the teachers invited me because they were doing an in-class comic book convention. So they were making their own comics. They were inviting other students from the school to come to the convention, and yeah. <laughs> and they wanted to have a professional artist there to do to do sketches for everybody. So the uh, the teacher got in touch with me through my LCS. Which is you know also up the street, and it was great because I you know you you got to see not just the boys but the girls really like into creating comics and wanting to read comics and reading old comics and just enjoying the hell out of them. And again, this this goes back to what I was saying about Katie, my daughter, is you know she wants. To read, she likes superheroes. She likes the concept of Wonder Woman. She likes the concept of Supergirl. She, but there isn't a character for her right now. Yeah. And you know, with Wonder Woman and with Supergirl and with you know, I, I haven't seen uh, the new Captain Marvel series, so I don't know how how that is. But there, there's been a tendency over the last couple of years and even longer than that like it's been going on for for at least you know 15 20 years but it's really just sort of become blatant over the last few years where the the female superheroes have become more and more sexually provocative and you know the the, the books themselves have become more and more violent and but violent in a a disturbing and unsettling way and like i was saying before i don't feel like that there there are that many gateway books for young readers let alone young female readers i was the artist on supergirl for 2 years and one of the things that shouldn't have been a controversy 
but ended up being a controversy was the fact that I decided to put now I wasn't the first artist to do this but I decided to do it myself was I put a Supergirl what was supposed to be a, a skort but ended up being miscolored as a separate pair of shorts right so what had happened was I I drew this for a few issues. I drew the book for a few issues. I did this. Nobody said anything. If anybody noticed, you know, it was one or two people. But what happened was I was at uh, Heroes Con. This was 2008. And uh, a young lady got up in the audience and said, thank you, thank you, thank you for putting shorts on Supergirl. <laughs> So then I got interviewed by Newsarama. The Newsarama interview got picked up by NPR. The NPR interview got picked up by a bunch of feminist blogs. Oh. And, it got, and, it, and it got to the point where the number one story in comics wasn't the fact that Captain America had just been killed. It was the fact that Jamal Eichel put shorts on Supergirl. <laughs> <laughs> And it shouldn't be like that. It should, you know, with this, it just seemed, I didn't do it for any other reason than it seemed appropriate. Right. You know, the, the, here, here's where you have this character when, you know, Sterling and Gates and I were doing the book, she was supposed to be 16 years old. You know, she's supposed to be a 16 year old superhero. You know, and. In my mind, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to be a 16-year-old superhero who flies in a skirt, it might be a good idea to put something on your butt, right? <laughs> just, in, just in case. Although it did tempt me to to write a super a Supergirl script where she had to track down a, a the guys who owned a website called SupergirlUpshots.com. <laughs> See, oh, that'd have been controversial. That would have been really that would have been really controversial. But this would have been like after she had you know changed, altered her costume, and put the short the shorts on, and she would have, you know somebody would have brought up to her like you know Captain Boomerang Junior or whoever she you know at at that point or Lana I guess you know since we're talking about during you know our run uh, Lana Lang basically saying did you know that there's this website. There's just a bunch of photos of you flying around, you know, and guys taking, you know, photos, photos of your 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 underwear while you're flying <laughs> and while you're saving people. So, again, it, it it sort of comes back to that idea that there really, right now, there really isn't a, a female character that hasn't been you know drawn with her ass pointing towards the camera and her head pointing in the opposite direction in the same direction you know i think we need there's certain things that we need to pull back a little bit i think we you know we there's a part of me that really feels like that we need to reclaim the superhero genre you know for young girls right you know we need you know we need to reclaim the mary marvels you know, we re- we need to reclaim Supergirl. We need to reclaim, you know, Katie Keene. We need to re- reclaim Nancy Drew. We need to reclaim, you know, Encyclopedia Brown. We need to bring these characters back from the brink to to a point where 
younger kids can read these characters without their parents feeling unsure about whether or not the material is important is appropriate for their child and it does this doesn't mean that you know i'm writing a kitty story no i'm not writing a kitty story there's the story that i'm writing is a very is a very serious examination of you know who molly is and who she becomes once everything in her life, everything that she believes about herself is ripped away from her. I consider Molly Danger a coming-of-age story rather than a superhero story. That, that is my focus. You know, the superhero thing is just a, a trapping, a shell to wrap around this much deeper examination of you know, this young girl's beliefs. want to make sure that like you know we get people as much information as possible so they can uh get to the molly danger kickstarter so um if you don't mind giving them like all the links or places where they can find you and the kickstarter um, absolutely go for it okay so you can as this episode goes up the link will be live so if you go to kickstarter.com and just look look up either action lab comics or molly danger you should be able to find it that way but you can also go to the production blog which is gomollydanger.blogspot.com you can go to the facebook page which is facebook.com backslash gomollydanger um you can contact me directly either on twitter which is uh, Jamal Eigel on Twitter or Go Molly Danger on Twitter. You can also uh, get in touch with me through my website, which is jamaleigel.com. Um, is it Go uh, on Twitter? I think oh, on, G- on Twitter it's Go underscore Molly Danger. Right. Yes. On Twitter is Go. Yeah, right. It's, it's Go underscore Molly Danger on Twitter. But on Blogspot, it's just Go Molly Danger. And the same thing on Facebook. It's just Go Molly Danger. Correct. Yes. You know, I, I got to keep up on these things, Jamal. I got to keep up of on course. these things. <laughs> This is, like I said, this is an exciting time for, for comic book creators. Um, like I so said, the, the, some will say the creator-owned renaissance is back again, but I really think this is a project that folks of all ages, young and old, male, female, boy, girl, can get behind and should get behind. If you have the time and if you have the finances to do so, Take the time out and donate to the Molly Danger Kickstarter, and you will receive some really great goodies. And because uh, I know some of y'all got deep pockets and gonna be able to get some of that fly stuff that I can't get, <laughs> so I will be you know salty McSaltrison uh, with you. But I'll be happy because you will be helping make Jamal Eigel's dream come true to um, show people the hero um, in Molly Danger that the world needs to see. So, exactly. Um, so we 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 have incentives at every possible level. Um, if you donate a dollar or more, we will send you a downloadable PDF of the Dart membership card, which will have the the password 
to enter the production blog once the the kicks once the Kickstarter's over the production blog at gomollydanger.blogspot.com is going to go private and it'll be for for backers only. So for one dollar you get access to the production production blog, um, and you get a PDF of the of the membership card for five dollars. You not only get access to the production blog, but you get an actual, actual physical Molly Danger Dart identifi- identification card. With, and you also get a choice of three uh, Molly Danger wallpapers that, that I'm drawing and will have ready by the, by the time the campaign is over. Two of them are done. I just need to get one more done. Um, if you donate ten dollars and more, you not only get the Dart membership card and access to production blog, but you also get a PDF of Molly Danger Book One, and you will actually get that PDF probably about three months before the book hits the shelves. Mm-hmm. So you'll get to see the entire book before anybody else if you donate $25 you not only get everything else that that we're offering but you get a copy of Molly Danger book 1 shipped to you uh still still hot in the shrink wrap and we're this won't just be domestic this will be domestic and international international if for Canada and Mexico you added another dollar for shipping European customers you add another seven dollars for shipping um, also for twenty five dollars you can get a Molly danger t-shirt and we're gonna be offering t-shirts in either pink or black nice. and covering all sizes uh, same thing you know if you're international we'll add a little bit more for shipping if you have it with within you to give us fifty dollars, you will get a signed copy of book one and everything else. You'll also get a limited edition print um, that that I'm going to draw for uh, for Kickstarter uh, as part of the Kickstarter incentives. If you donate seventy five dollars, you get everything else. Plus, we are going to be doing a behind the scenes sketchbook. That will only be available to kick the, to the uh, Kickstarter faithful. Mm, gotta save some money. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and from here it gets insane. Okay. All right. So for a hundred dollars, you get a signed copy of Molly Danger Book One, but you will also get in the front cover of Molly Danger Book 1, an original black and white sketch by me. Nice. Along with everything else that we're offering. Mm. So you get the, the Dart membership card, you get the print, you get the sketchbook, and you get these the signed and sketched Molly Danger Book. And that's limited to 30, uh, 30 people. Uh, for $150 or more, we have a domestic retailer incentive pack, which you will get 10 signed copies of Molly Danger Book 1 for half price. So basically, it'll be retail for $19. You will get it, get 10 copies, shipping included, for $150. Okay. For $200, you get a signed copy of Molly Danger Book 1 but you will also get it will also have a full color sketch okay. in the front cover um you also get a limited edition uh molly danger poster 24 uh, 24 by 36 wall poster hey now i can, man ooh that that's like about the same size as my superman 3 poster yeah 
Exactly. That's gonna do it. exactly. And it'd be better looking than my Superman. We also, but the the for if you place two hundred dollars or more, um, if you're an international retailer, then we will also send you ten copies, send ten signed copies of the book. Um, if you pledge four hundred dollars or more, you will get two copies of Molly Danger Book One, along with all the other incentives that we offer. And each copy will have an original color sketch in it. In it. Now, if you pledge five hundred dollars or more. You will you will be able to get an eleven by seventeen commission from me of any character, any background, any number of characters that you want. I usually charge a thousand dollars for these, but you and they will be drawn on DC Comics cover stock. Now here we get to the really crazy ones. Okay, so for a thousand dollars, and this is limited to ten people. You will get four copies of Molly Danger Book One, each one with an original color sketch. Okay. You will get the poster. Mm-hmm. You will get the production sketchbook. You will get access to the blog. You will get a PDF copy of Book One before the book ships. Mm-hmm. You will get thanks and acknowledgement on the Molly Danger website and in the collected edition. For $5,000, we have retailer incentive package number two, which is I will give you 100 copies of Molly Danger prints. We will have a point-of-purchase display stand made for you, and I will fly to your store and do a signing where I will do sketches, I will shake hands, I will kiss babies, I will do everything that I need. It will be an in-store signing. And the same thing, if you donate $7,000 and you're outside of the continental U.S., I will fly to your store. And I will, I will bring all this stuff with me. Look, listen, man, I can't take out business loans right now, man. You're killing me. <laughs> You're killing me with these incentives, man. You're killing me, but you ain't done yet. Go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I, I forgot to mention something about the $1,000 pledge, the, the four copies of Molly Danger Book One. Yeah. I, I forgot to mention something about that pledge. You also get a page of artwork from the book. Oh, okay. Okay. You also get a page of original art from the book. Okay. Now, here's where it gets really, really nuts. And I and I I've, I say this a lot in the Kickstarter, and I really believe it. I believe so much in Molly Danger that if one person wants to donate ten ten thousand dollars, they will own thirty eight pages of original artwork from Molly Danger Book One. Whoa! That, I that's serious, man. I mean, you you are willing to give up literally through your Kickstarter tiers all of your Molly Danger pages. Exactly. Exactly. That is how much I believe in my girl and in this project. So not only will you get four, not only will you get the, 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 the bulk of the book, 38 pages of original penciled artwork, you will be credited in the book as the producer of the printed book. You will get four copies of the book, each one with an original sketch. You will get the Dart membership card. You will get a, the PDF. You will get the access to the production blog. You will get the, the limited edition sketchbook. You will get the 24 by 36 Molly Danger poster. You will get all of that and my original artwork. You ain't going to put no blood on the pages, are you? 
No, I'm not going to put any blood on the pages. I ain't cursing the pages. I ain't. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't going to pull a Gene Simmons, are you? Exactly. exactly. Okay. I, I, I can't swing it like Gene. Okay, no problem. <laughs> just checking. I'm just checking. But no, I mean, seriously, that takes a lot. Because look, I know how you are about, you know, about your pages that you do. You know, right. from like all your sequential artwork, I like you are close to your art. It's, you know, it's like it's like that second child. Right. And for you to be willing to give up something that is yours, pages that are yours, not just because you drew them, but because it is your own property. Um, that's saying a lot, man. That That's saying a lot. So, uh, no, I, I give you props. And the thing is, there are a lot of tears here. There are a lot of tears, tears for, you know, for individuals, tears for retailers, tears for the high rollers, tears for like, you know, folks with a budget. There's something for everybody. Exactly. On this tier. Nobody's left out. No, nobody. I wanted to make I've 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 been giving this a lot of thought and I wanted to make sure that this was something that even if you only have a little bit to give. You know, even if it's as little as a dollar, every every little bit counts. I appreciate every little bit of count. And I want you to get something of value for your donation. Jamal, you know, I wish you well on it. You know, Thank you, you know, myself, everybody at Action Lab, you know, we're going to push you. We're going to help you push this to the hilt. And because uh, we want this to be successful. I know how much this project means to you and it means a lot to me and it means a lot to your fan base and the people that support you and love you so best of luck on this like i said i'll be running with you for 30 days on this too all right man (laughs) so uh i gotta i gotta get me some new shoes and start running so uh but no it's gonna be a mad dash once things get started yeah man and i gotta get back in shape so uh, <laughs> you and me too, brother. <laughs> but but listen, no, thank you for taking out the time to do this and uh, to be on the show to uh, represent oh, Molly. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Thank you. I the 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 only thing that I would like to leave the the audience with is this thought that if if you're tired of the darkness and the the malaise that is happening currently in the, the what we consider to be the mainstream of comics you know give independent comics a try give independent creators a try go out you don't have to collect the X-Men just because it's the X-Men and you've been collecting it for 20 years. Yeah. Do you, this is supposed to be a hobby that you enjoy. You know, it shouldn't be a chore. You shouldn't, you know, some people want to just, you know, collect things that they don't like to complain. Life's too short for that. Yeah. You know, as a, as a creator, I would rather you enjoy the work that I'm putting out there. So, if if you think that this is something that you can get behind and just know that from the bottom of my heart i thank you for even your consideration because this is a project that means the world to me and you know this is something that i i want to leave behind for my katie and for her kids and i hope that 
this is something that people are able to embrace and enjoy because I think once everything is said and done that this will be an uplifting story and a story that you know parents of young young girls will want to give to their daughters so that they know that you know everything will be okay in the end no matter you know how many obstacles get thrown at you in life you know thank you for coming on the show jamal and um best of luck to you and like i said man for 30 days me and you gonna be running exactly so um you know you better like get you some of that stuff like that the anti-chafe (laughs) Um, because uh, trust me brother you're going to need it it's a lot of running I know I know I'm ready (laughs) I'm ready I've I've been ready for two months now I'm, I'm ready to run I'm on the line right now with a gentleman uh, that is new to the PKD Black Box. Uh, He is an artist. Uh, He currently has a project, artist and creator. Let me rephrase that. He is an artist and a creator. Uh, He currently has a project on Kickstarter called The Power Principle. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you the energetic, always going, always maintaining, well-rounded, fine class of a gentleman, Mr. Alan White. Alan, how you doing, sir? I appreciate it. You, you you know how to bring them out, don't you? <laughs> I thank you. Uh, you you welcome, man. You welcome. Hey, you're a good dude. So, you got this project here on Kickstarter called the Power Principle, which can be found on Kickstarter.com. You're trying to raise, um, you're trying to raise seven thousand dollars for it. Um, as of um, once this episode airs, you'll have I think like twenty two twenty two days left uh, to back it. Um, right now, as of t- as of this rec- this recording, you're almost at fifty percent. You've got like three thousand seventy three dollars, um, but you're trying to get to that seven thousand dollar goal before time runs out. And um, the thing about Alan is, for those that don't know Alan, this man brings energy to a room, and I'm talking about positive energy. You know, he makes you feel good. You know, like when you have those family reunions and you got those relatives you can't stand, but you got that one, re- <laughs> but you got that one relative in your family that no matter what will make you feel good. Not only about you know about family or about yourself. That's who Alan is. So um, when I heard that he was doing this Kickstarter project for the Power Principle, I was like, I got to get him on the show so we can talk about it. When did the quest for creating art? When did that all start for you? Well, so that that would be a long time ago. I think I was maybe probably 10 or 11 or 12. And um, it started when I saw comic books was and was reading comic books and then wanted to make comic books. So I know that I used to... Um, I made my I made the world's first action figures, by the way. I I was before Mego. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I would draw them on a piece of paper, and then I would put cardboard behind the paper. Then I would cut them out. Yes. And then I would stick them to the uh, cardboard. So I and I'd color them with my crayons, and I would, I had the Fantastic Four, and because uh, that was my first comic, so I loved that that bright blue cyan and i love the human torch with little highlights of yellow and orange and i love that the thing was orange so i used to play with those little fellas and read comics and then i started to um just think about what it would be like to make my own comics so i would take my ditto paper 
that I would lift from school. I think in the beginning I asked permission and then I just started to take them. And I don't think they mind too much because they had big reams of them. And then I drew things um, and wrote things. And I remember one was called the Space Lords and one was called the Annihilators. Yes, that's right, Marvel Comics. So I'm expecting a check. Um <laughs> And I have and I have proof. I have a witness. My friend Eliel, E L I E L, is a buddy of mine. We're still in big contact now, and um, he remembers my. I know he he's, he better come through. He he remembers me writing these comics and drawing these comics. You said like Fantastic Four was your first comic, the first comic book that you you know remember reading. Um, do you remember what that issue was? That first oh, Fantastic Four book. Most definitely, it was one. It was one seventy-five, and it came out in nineteen seventy-six. And it's funny because uh, just uh, last night on on Twitter, Joe Caramagna said, um, "What was your first comic?" And I remember it because I did a Marvel Noise segment on one seventy-fives for one seventy-five for for um, episode one seventy-five, and the Fantastic Four one seventy-five was in the rotation. But I had already known, and I own it, and I'm looking at it right now, of 175. So that was my first one, and then I looked up the date, of course, and it was 1976. So I was mm, 12 when I snatched it off the, the spinner rack. Influenced you. You made you made your own little action. You made your own action figures. You, you, know, you, sure you did. I made the Fantastic Car. That, I had to learn origami. That's to, dedication, man. You take a you take a toilet roll tube, and then you then you make a, a paper box, two paper boxes, and you attach them to either side of the tube, and then you make like two little um like shaped egg shaped kind of paper. So you have to plot out what it looks like flattened out. Mm. Cut that out. And then you fold it and you tape it together and then you stick those to the side of the tube. And so you've got this fantastic car. I'm on my hands back then. Oh, that's all right. Well, we all had too much time on our hands back then. And also we didn't have things like cell phones and supercomputers and all the types of stuff to surround us. So we had to rely on our imaginations to create, man. Right. And a million Internet friends. We didn't have them back then. No, we didn't. We didn't have, you know, Facebook friends and Twitter followers and and all, all those types of things. I'm, I remember there was a kid who lived right across the street from me um, when, like, I used to live in my grandma's house in, like, the early 80s. And he didn't have a Millennium Falcon. He loved his Star Wars action figures, but he didn't have a Millennium Falcon. So what he did was he took a bunch of uh, little Debbie boxes Little, little Debbie cake boxes and like cut them and pieced them together and like made like this his own version of the Millennium Falcon and like had like placeholders for all the figures and, nah. <laughs> and to him it was the greatest thing on earth and I remember the first time I saw it I was just like man what is this craziness <laughs> I was like I don't know what this is but I was like this is kind of crazy but it took me a while for me to register and say, hey, he made this, he used his imagination, he put it together, and if his family can't afford a Millennium Falcon, if that's the if that's what he had to do to satisfy that need, so be it. I can't, there you go. I, you know, I can't hate on that. So that's right. Can't hate on that at all, but no, I mean, that's just what we used to do. We had to innovate. Well, has, the market ever, has the market ever produced a fantastic car? 
I don't um, think so. Yeah, I think, Has it? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Well, where's um, mine? I need one. <laughs> there, there have been a couple of toy Fantastic cars. I think during the uh, during all the runs of the Fantastic Four figures, I, there may have been one or two. So I'm, and I'll have to look that up for you after we finish this recording, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see if there's still any out there. But now, time passes. You get a little bit older. And you decide to make the journey to art school to continue to hone your art craft. Now, where did that road take you? Took me to, to Joe Kubert's School of Cartoon Art and uh, Graphic Design. At least, I, I, that's what I call it, but I keep calling it different things every time I say it out loud. Because so, <laughs> it had a lot of words to it. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting old, so I don't always remember. School of Cartoon and Graphic Art. There. There we go. And and it was in Dover. Um, it still is Dover, but this time when I was going there, it was in um, it was on a hill in a mansion on a hill. And I had already started reading about the X Men, so there was nothing more exciting to my brain than the thought of going to a foreign state and and interviewing in a mansion to go to school. It's a, it's imprinted in my head forever, and it was just. Two years ago at New York Comic Con that I uh, got a chance to to just shake Joe's hand and tell him what an impression it made on my membrane. And it was the same year that I figured out how to um, bring the story that I started back then forward. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a good it was a good two years ago. It was during my birthday, in fact. Nice. So you went to school. Mm-hmm. Um, you worked on you. You worked on your art craft. Some more time passes, and you many, many, many years ago, many years ago, you released a comic book called The Power Principle. Yes, like the first issue got out there, and was it like the first issue or the first and second issue. The first one. Okay, it was only the first one. I, I only got a chance to publish the first one. Okay, and so you put out that first issue, and then. And then things change. You go on a different path. Life changes and stuff like that. Now we come full circle. We come full circle. And you have steeped yourself back into the world of art. You have steeped yourself back into the world of sequential art and and, and drawing. What was the inspiration to go back and finish this story? Well, you were. And Mike Myers was. And David A. Price. And... And Comic Geek Speak and Fanboy Radio and everybody that I've been meeting on the net for the past five years um, who are in this business, who are fans like me and go and segging into the business, making um, news and making podcasts and just being involved in the medium where in 89, when I made the first comic, you were on a ship in the middle of the sea all by yourself if you wasn't in marvel or dc you were you were you were it mm-hmm. and um the indivi- the individual comic companies like kamiko and first comics and those guys eclipse they were all doing their thing but they were in chicago or texas or wherever but i was in new york city so, well, I was in Spring Valley, New York, but that's 25 miles outside of New York City. So I'm practically in the metro area. And to do it myself was daunting, to say the least. So so it didn't, it didn't seem like it was possible, but I, I had to do something. And because those other guys are doing it in other parts of the country, I figured I could do it myself. But now 
when I've met everybody and I see how how realistic it is to to try it again, when I finally admitted to Mike Myers that I did do something <laughs> back in the day before we ever met, uh, I it started to, it started to take momentum for itself. There was there was a um a middle ground in. 1999 or yeah like 1999 i was out during that part of life that took me away from all this creative side i was going for the masters of counseling out in missouri and i was i was looking at being into uh, the ministry and all sorts of things but the creative flow didn't stop so in that period of time i wrote a novel but and superheroes were still on my brain. But since I was writing a novel and not drawing it, I was getting more into uh, the stories that drive these these characters, or, or or just characters, just stories that drive characters. So when the my Twitter feed yeah suggested that I that I follow NanoRimo, which is that National Novel Writing Month, mm-hmm. and I and I have put together this novel called um, Awakening at Rebus because I had a lot of time on my hands out there, but I wasn't drawing. So I figured, um, let me just explore what it's like to deal with superpowers. In, um, and that, so what I've done now is, I, I've, that was just two years ago, I, decided, I realized that I could blend the two worlds together. So I took the elements from the novel, which is the story element and the lives of people element, and I and I brought my characters from 1989 forward to then it was 2010. Now it's 2012. Bring them forward and deal on a global scale with people that maybe suddenly experiencing these superpowers all over the world. And going into the life story of people, what would it be like for um, a businessman suddenly having illuminescence and can't turn it off? Or what would it be like to have an, an Indian little girl who can suddenly break rocks in her bare hands? Just all sorts of permutations of humanity with superhumanity laid on top of it. I was reading your uh, your Kickstarter for the Power Principle, and it talks about you know some of those things you talked about just a moment ago. About it says thirty years have passed since the super. I mean, thirty years have passed for the superhuman Clinton House Boys. Now their lives collide to slay past demons and train the new heroes of today. In in, in making this story and creating this universe, what artistic changes or what what do you feel has changed artistically for you since the original first issue in 1989 and what you're planning to do with this Kickstarter project today? Artistically, I, I find myself still making certain mistakes that I'm I'm hammering out. Okay. But I think my sense of anatomy is better. Uh, my sense of proportion and faces are better. And I, I think I still have retained the sequential flow of panels and storytelling. 
and I've, I've never really, I never really examined my own ability to do that. But I've listened to a lot of critique on when it goes wrong, or when it's not as effective. And I and I've always realized what I I've always appreciated about sequential story uh, telling and and the and the advantage that the comic medium gives you there. So I'm playing with that, but I'm loving that, and I'm finding myself just really enamored with, um, I guess, years of comic book reading and and listening to comic book critiquing and training my fingers to do what's pleasing to my eye now. So back then, I when I ended, the, I, I actually drew three issues. I only published the one, but I, I did one, two, and three. And by the time I had finished issue number three, I was really happy with what I was looking at there. I, I had found a way to make the the women's faces a lot more feminine, and um, I was able also to preserve the individual um, quirky styles of the faces in my cast so that they didn't look identical to one another. Um, it's a multiracial cast, so they can't look identical to one another. But even those who are of the same race, they have to look differently because people look differently. So I think I've been able, no, I've definitely been able to preserve that. And that's, and that's pleasing to me. Now that I'm drawing it today, I'm, I, I've aged the characters 30 years and I'm having a ball with that. And, and it, it really feels like I'm looking through a yearbook when I look at my old art and now I'm looking at and now I'm drawing the new stuff I'm I'm consciously making sure that these guys look 30 years older and I love it in telling this story um, you have a uh, in your Kickstarter you have like a plan you have a definitive plan of what you want to do with this book and you have uh, like an assorted amount of uh, pledge tiers uh, what kind of things uh, what kind of things um, will backers receive um, with their pledges well, I have, I, <clears throat> on the upper tiers, like the very highest tier, yeah, I'm going to start the very highest one, and then it goes backwards, right? right. And it, you take away some, some of the higher end stuff. So on the highest tier, it's a $500 pledge. I call it the Mega Shwega Shubap Ba-Bam reward. <laughs> but you're going to get an original page of the 1989 comic, which which will include um, original pencils, original inks, and the overlay sheet that I used for um, the duotone shading that gave two shades of gray that were reproducible by black and white printing back then. Mm. So you get that. And then you'll also get a, a page from the original 2012 issue number one but then you along with you'll get a featured spot in the comic for the next um story arc after eight you'll get the comic you'll get a subscription to the first eight comics which is the first story arc mm -hmm. you'll get that in print and you'll get that in pdf you get a sketch from me you'll get a print of the promo posters that are going to reproduce 
four guest artists, one of four guest artists who are Robert Atkins, who does G.I. Joe, Dave Stokes, who is up and coming, who is excellent. J.K. Woodward, who is now doing Assimilation Squared, the Doctor Who Star Trek crossover. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Jamal Igle, who is about to kick it off with Molly Danger. So those those are going to be um, guest covers, number one, two, three, four, and five. Hmm. And eight. J.K. Woodward is gonna is gonna finish out the story arc with a painted cover for eight. So and so when you go from that, you you take away one item because what I, I would have loved to have had them enumerated in a column, mm-hmm. but Kickstarter doesn't actually format it in a column yet. <laughs> they made one change. They made a layout change to the project pages so i don't guess it's too far away no it's not no no, not at all but um 200 is a a platinum reward where you get all of those things i just mentioned except the original pages from 89 because you know those jokers are precious to me i carry (laughs) (laughs) that's why (laughs) that's why i put them on the 500 dollars thing and if nobody pledges that 500 dollars it's okay I promise you, it's okay. Uh, if I meet the goal, nobody pledges five hundred. So I won't be insulted because I get to keep those because I've been carrying those around for thirty years, and I really don't want to let them go. I'm telling well, you. Not only have you carried them for thirty years, you, I'm sure you've kept them in good shape. That is a mission because you've been a traveling man. Uh, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> you heard me mention Missouri, so I, I, Missouri and points points in between. From the time I left Spring Valley at 27 until now, 47, traveling, 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 out there and back. Didn't make it all the way back to New York, so made some pit stops in Trenton, and then over in Paramus, and then finally back over here. New cars, old cars, apartments, you name it, this box has been, car- has been going with me everywhere I've gone. So, so it's a it's not just the art, but it's some you get sheets of history if you want them. If you don't want them, I keep them, and I want to keep them. Right. I'm I'm even feeling a little anxiety right now about the possibility that somebody might snatch one of these pages away from me. Brothers, breathe, brother, breathe. But I I will sacrifice it <laughs> for the greater good. You also have tiers that start, um, like if like uh, let's see here, you got tiers that also start at like two dollars and four dollars and ten and twenty. So there, yes. there's like a level of affordability as well. Oh yes, two dollars you get the PDF of, of issue one, and four dollars you get the PDF and I'll, and the first printing of issue one. So you get the PDF and you'll get the first printing and I'll autograph that for four dollars. Hmm. For ten dollars you'll get the PDF, the autographed and a full print of a 16 set sketch cards. So, and I learned that from, from Chad Ciccone. Cause every time that you mentioned that when I'd meet you at, at a uh, convention 
it would first at the PKD media table and now at the action lab table. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> you got to work it, Sean Pryor. Uh, I'm trying, man. I'm trying. Uh, believe when I believe me. To the table, there's Chad and he's forever making his sketches of uh, sketch cards and I'm forever staring at him because I'm just loving on him. Mm-hmm. So I said, let me get a piece of that action. Maybe uh, I'm not the only one fascinated by these things. Uh, and I've, and I've heard different, um, Kickstarter projects, um, tell, how they're they're an attraction lately so so yeah so i have two sheets each sheet is 16 sketch cards and i'm keeping them intact right now for printing so that's going to be printed and that'll go to the ten dollar pledgers but the twenty dollar pledgers and the twenty five dollar pledgers will get one of those sketch cards i'm going to after it gets printed i'm going to subdivide them and i'm going to include them into the backing Okay. And from doing this, like what you're trying to do is you're trying to you're you're, ta- you're taking you know once you know you hit that goal, your goal is to make is to complete this eight issue series, correct? Yeah, the the money I'm asking for is to be able to cover the printing of 250 issues of each issue. So 250 of issue one, 250 of issue two, all the way up to issue eight, and they're going to be printed in black and white interiors with color covers but issue eight is going to be printed with full color inside and out okay so that's for distribution for availability um for publication you know to make them um just to get that financial base so that i know that as i'm drawing them i know they'll be able to go out they'll be able to go out there won't be any hindrances nothing going to be in the way of getting those out to the people however they get out to the people okay Let's say everything is success, so you get to hustling, you getting these books out effectively as possible, you staying on target, you staying on your plan. You took like almost like a 20-year hiatus to get back to this. Now you're, you know, you're serious, you're committed to it, you know, you're back in the game. What happens after, for you, what do you think, what happens next after the power principle is done? Done. I, I see myself doing the power principle for the rest of my life. All right. All right. Issue eight and then issue nine and then issue 10 and then issue 11, issue 12, 13, 14, every month. When we used to go to job interviews when we were younger and they would say, um, you know, what is it that you plan to do with the rest of your life? Blah, 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 which at times is an impossible question to even answer, <laughs> especially when you're young, because you don't know no better. You know, you don't know no better. You're still trying to find out who the hell you are. Ain't that the truth? Yeah, you, you know, so, uh, I mean, hell, there's people that are older than me that don't know what the hell they want to be or, or where the hell they want to go yet. You know, but still, the point is when you're young, you know, for many, that answer is not there yet, you know. But, you know, I, I give you credit for coming back to art. And I really do because we've hit, the, I think we've really hit this phase now where people are really starting to, like, either a go back to the to like the dreams that like they push to the side and it could be for all types of different reasons you know what i mean all types but you're going back to it you got that dedication you got that focus you got the determination and i love that and i, I love seeing that in people you know what i mean i do yes. 
you know I, I love that I love that like I like I tell <laughs> like I tell people all the time I want to draw I, I I eventually want to draw and for me the biggest issue is is finding time there are only so many hours in the in the day yeah and so you know but like when I when I hear when I heard that you were doing this Kickstarter project he's like I'm, I'm drawing again and all this stuff that got me excited <laughs> that got me excited because you know somebody that actually can draw that stepped away from it went back to it and is like I'm in this for the long haul and I love that I absolutely love that I thank you, you. oh you're welcome it's just I've seen and I, you know and I don't know if you've seen this but like where I grew up I knew of a lot of I knew of a lot of talented people that just quit and they quit for numerous reasons, whether it be that, like, you know, the family situation was a complete and utter mess or somebody said the wrong thing to them at a certain age, which damaged them emotionally. So uh-huh. so they would just they just quit and stepped away from it. And I'm not saying it just has to do with comic books or art. This could be anything. Right. Right. And I saw so much of that in, my, in the town that I grew up in and and they never went back to it. And. And regardless of whether if they'd have stayed with it and said, you know what, well, you know, life took me here, life took me there, and I want to do this, I wanted to do, to do that, that's something else. But a lot of them just quit. And they said, you know what, I'm here, and I guess, you know, what this person said of me is all that I can be anyway. So I'm just going to be that. And that always disappointed me with, with right. people. It always disappointed me. And they never went back and said, you know what, let me give this a try again. They just said, no, nah, this is what I'm supposed to be. And that's it. And I hate I hated that. That was the one thing about my hometown that I just despised. And it was like it just became this like zone of 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 creative death. And I wow. it. Wolf. I'm sorry. I don't mean I don't mean I mean, I don't mean to be mean, but it <laughs> that's what it was. It was a zone of, of creative death. And it just hurt me because there was so much talent in my hometown. They just quit. Wow, you, it sounds like a story idea to me. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> give, give give me some time and, and and a pen and a pad. I might be able to do something with it. Well, you better hurry because I like it. <laughs> well, look if well, if you want to use it, brother, go ahead and use it. My feelings ain't gonna be hurt because at least somebody putting it to good use. No, well, oh, go that's one of the uh, that's one of the things I'm offering at at um at a hundred dollar tier is that if you pledge at a hundred dollars, I'm gonna I'm doing you a story. You're you're becoming you're going to be one a, a, a focus character for a story arc, so um, and I've got a few people who have already because that's how the power principle began. When I was going to the school, I was I, I had to live with five guys that I never met before, away from home, and so I'm going into comics and I'm and, I, and we're all going. I'm thinking, what if we all had superpowers for real right here in this house? What if what what would we do with them? What would we be like? And so now I'm getting that opportunity to do that with I've got like four people already and I'm ready to write their stories, put them into my book and find out what it would be like with these people. Mm. So, I mean, that's the biggest spark. There was a there was a a role playing game called Villains and Vigilantes. And I think I got the idea from that at first. I do believe I, I know Bill Willingham had some art in those books. I do believe the, the rule set was make yourself and then apply these superhero superpowers to that character. 
I think that was it. And ever since then, I'm like, yeah, man, what would it be like if that guy was a superhero? What would it be like if that guy was a superhero? Oh, you did that with Mercury and the Murd. Man, you bringing it back, man. <laughs> uh, you know, I bet that's what snatched me up and made me present myself at your table because you did something that was already on my heart to do. Take some buddies. That's right. I remember hearing you. I totally remember hearing you in, a, in, a, in an interview or on your own show talk about how you love the idea of after you got to know the CGS guys, what would it be like to put your buddies in a comic book? And, I, and I'm sitting listening like, yeah, I think I know a little bit about that. <laughs> and kept it to myself because I, w- I wasn't ready. Right. I just. Right. Uh, but yeah, man, that's it. So yeah, man. Um, and story it, you wind up in the power principle. It's so awesome. See, I love the enthusiasm that 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 you have, Alan. Like I said, <laughs> you you meet Alan, his enthusiasm is so infectious. You will feel within five minutes that you can take over the world all by yourself. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's it's a beautiful it is a beautiful thing. Now, the name of your book is The Power Principle. And every time I say Power Principle, I think of Janet Jackson's Pleasure Principle. You better. You better. You don't even know. <laughs> if you knew, if you, if I, you know, I hope time travel at some time is developed in our history and our future. Because I want to go back and watch me as I, I guess I was in my 20s at the time, just hovering over MTV with my finger on the on the VCR button, just wait very first second the lights go up in that garage with that blue background and janet with the hair down on her forehead mm-hmm. getting ready to kick it soon as that song started man you don't you got oh, i'm happy so <laughs> so yeah i know that that song itself and and uh just the way the peas pop in the words pleasure principle mm hit me just the right way. And uh, it's a concept, you know? It's the the, ple- the concept, what happens with power? What do people do with it? And since I'm, I'm, I'm exploring every avenue of this thing, from in the home to the corporate world to everywhere, what is it like when people just suddenly get empowered? The power principle, yeah. Before we close this out, can you tell people where they can find you on the internet and where can they find out more information about the power principle? Right on. So I am always on Twitter. That's one of the complaints that one of my friends had one time. You're always on Twitter, but I am (laughs) because you can carry it around with you. And that means I get to carry all my friends around with me everywhere I go. And I've made enough that I can have a friend at any time of the day or night. So on Twitter, I am found at New Mutant, not more than one, just me, New Mutant. So you can friend me there. I'm also New Mutant on Facebook. New, first name, last name, Mutant. And you can find more about the Power Principle. You can see the first three issues, as a matter of fact, for for free at powerprinciplecomic.blogspot.com. So I've I've reposted those pages, 
including issue one, scanned issue um, one, the printed version, because I gave those print I gave those pages away to the printing company. I've never seen them again. Mm. I know, I know, but I do have the issues two and three. And so uh, those are the ones that you can snatch up for my Meshwagger Bam <laughs> tier. At, uh, again, that's powerprincipalcomic.blogspot.com. That's where you'll see those. You can catch up even because when you start with the Power Principle in 2012, we're 30 years past those days. Hmm. And you can catch up with those characters. Um, and I also have a Facebook page for the Power Principle. So you can just go to Facebook and search the Power Principle and get to the, my page there. And don't forget... Go to kickstarter.com, type in the words power principle or the power principle, and you will be able to find Alan White's power principle project on Kickstarter to make a donation. Yep, or you can put it in a Google bar. The power principle, Alan White, and it'll pop up the very first thing. Nice. Look at you. You just got it all together, don't you? Well, I don't know how that happened, but it happened, so I'm happy. Let it happen. <laughs> Guess there's no other Alan Whites in the world doing a power principle. There so you, there you go. There you go. Now you need you need to get your own garage and and, and get you some some pleasure principle music <laughs> and just start dancing. Cause you might think I'm crazy, but I'm serious. No, I, I know you're serious. Let's listen. listen. You know now. <laughs> What I thought was happiness was only part-time bliss. You can take your bow. <laughs> That's right. You better recognize. That is that is actually my wife's favorite Janet video. Ha! And I know your wife knows how to move it, move it. I, I, look, man. Look, <laughs> she's a better dancer than I am. You know. It's all right with it, me. Yes, it, that's all right with me too. <laughs> but no, but Alan, thanks for taking out the time to stop by the show and telling us about the uh, power principle on Kickstarter. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for the opportunity. We got to get it out there because uh, a couple of days left. Let's get it out there. Yes. Yes. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our forum, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard. Um, oh, did I did I tell you I went to see CMLL when I was in Mexico City? See who? CMLL, Lucha no, Libre. No, you didn't tell me that. Yes, I did. Yes, I did, son. It was off the fucking chain. <laughs> <laughs> and you know who? You know who had a match? Who had psychosis? A match? Not nah, nah, psychosis. Psychosis. That's my dude. <laughs> That's my dude, man. Psychosis gonna, was the you shit. You could probably you could probably see me on the screen. I'm holding up the the blue demon. Oh, Lucha mask that I bought. Man, I'm I, I'm gonna have to make I'm gonna have to make an Action Lab Luchador mask now. <laughs> that is awesome, dude. You saw psychosis. You don't know how hype I am right now. I am hype. Uh, I you know. it was it was good. These guys, 
Like they 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 make these guys make Rey Mysterio look like he's moving through mud. That's not dude, that's not surprising. That is not surprising at all. Dude, uh, there's nothing like a a, a lucha. You know the lucha, the lucha, the lucha libre uh, wrestlers are just incredible. And oh, the, yeah. the things they do is just utterly amazing. Psychosis. Oh my god, yeah. that gets me so hyped right now. I, I'm about <laughs> to do like a hur- a hurricana off the top of the house. 